Good evening. This is Cinema 60. You did that. Came down here with 15 minutes of a black sensibility. And see, you don't understand that. You came down here to shoot 15 minutes of what it's taken 300 years to develop. Grief, you know. Look, I'm not interested And in all grief. we try to explain to you is that you don't understand. I do something. You see, I do it well. That's my job. No, but you don't do it black enough. You can't because you're not black. I'm white. We are. Hi, Bart. Hi, Jenna. It's Cinema 60 time. Cinema 60 time. Why don't we have a theme song like that? We should. Something very 60s. You know, we've never talked about the mysterious lady that introduces our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> The third member of Cinema 60 that no one's ever asked about, except for, like, my mom. <laughs> my mother was like, who is that? I thought people just assumed it was me with pitch shifter on my voice. It might be. I'm not going to spoil it. So we're talking about Haskell Wexler tonight, because he's probably one of the few cinematographers from this period that a lot of people would have some uh, name recognition with. He won his first Academy Award for cinematography in this decade. I won't spoil the surprise by saying what it is, but we will be talking about the film. But he's a class act. He does great work behind the camera. He's probably uh, most famous for movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Bound for Glory, which was another Oscar win for him. And uh, Coming Home did a lot of stuff with Hal Ashby. Days of Heaven, he took over a cinematographer after Nestor Almendros left, and that's an amazing-looking movie, Mate One. All sorts of great stuff. Any of his movies, you look at them and, and you think, that's a pretty-looking picture. What do you uh, come to Haskell Wexler with? I'm a big Wexhead, as we call ourselves. <laughs> I'm genuinely a big fan of Haskell Wexler's cinematography. He's one of the few cinematographers that make you... <laughs> This is going to sound terrible, and don't take this the wrong way, because I do very much care about cinematographers, but he is one of the few cinematographers that really, I think, makes you stop and look at the credits. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like he really commands the screen in a way that, and, and I've had this conversation before with a friend about like thinking that actually, you know, the auteur theory in some ways applies more to cinematographers than directors. And, and this was especially interesting for us to go back and look at everything he did in the 60s because it does seem, considering that it's completely different directors, and yet if you put your hands over your eyes, which you can't do and watch a movie, but if you, if you didn't know, if you went in blind, I don't know that you would be able to tell that there were different directors because of the fact that his vision and his style is so strong. How do you go in blind and look at the photography in a so, film? It's a, a metaphor. Okay. <laughs> But you know what I mean? Like he really has such a, a clear style that to me defines all of these movies more so than the director does or even the scripts sometimes. Really tight close-ups on faces and expressions, a lot of handheld camera, a real focus on fluid movement and emotion All of these are, are wonderful showcases for that. And all of these movies, I think, are better for the fact that they had Haskell Wexler as their cinematographer. So I love them. My sense of Haskell Wexler was mainly from all of the color films of his I've seen. And, and you know, the muted, almost sort of 
sepia-toned colors that he uses. I didn't necessarily have a sense of his black and white work. I think that his style and his black and white work is very distinctive, too. You wouldn't necessarily know it's the same guy who's shooting these color films that he did. But maybe as we go through these movies, we can talk about how some of his black and white techniques carried over into color. But yeah, now after watching all these 60s movies, I do have more of a sense of what his black and white style is. And it's equally distinctive and uh, impressive. Pretty to look at. Definitely, uh, he does have this, uh, like, a signature way of looking at things that I think comes across really clearly throughout all of his work. But it does shift when he gets to color, and I definitely am excited to talk about that, too. So... Starting at the beginning with uh, with Mr. Wexler, 1947, he got his, his cinematographer's card, and he started out shooting industrial films and commercials and a little bit of TV, but mostly he did uh, lots and lots of documentaries, mostly short documentary films. And you can tell, like, he definitely brings that documentary experience into his feature films when he starts making them in the 60s. His first feature was actually, uh, that he shot was 1958's Stakeout on Dope Street, directed by Irvin Kirshner, who he actually worked with several times. I don't really know the story, how these two guys got hooked up, but you can thank uh, the director of The Empire Strikes Back for uh, getting Haskell Wexler started in, in making feature films. But this was just like a, you know, a low-budget film not very well remembered today. And he, he made a string of, of these really not particularly well-remembered low-budget films from 58 to basically 1963 when he uh, when Ilya Kazan grabbed him to do America, America. That was his sort of big break in, in larger-budget films. But, you know, he did seven or eight low-budget films. We're only going to talk about one of them, Hoodlum Priest. It's probably the best known of all of these smaller movies he made. Uh, another one, Angel Baby, uh, from, from the same year, 1961, is remembered as the debut film of Burt Reynolds. It's a George Hamilton film. But uh, other than that, I don't think there's very much to remember about that one. But uh, Hoodlum Priest was the film that we selected to represent this little-known period of Haskell Wexler's career because it's notable for its strong political content. It deals with the death penalty, first of all, but also deals with ex-convicts' rights. And we'll find as we go through all of Haskell Wexler's films that he shot that he's, he's really drawn to these types of stories with strong political content. He was a real activist himself. I don't know if you have any activist stories to tell us. So Haskell was always pretty politically active. He ended up joining the Navy during the Second World War, and he ended up as leaving as a decorated vet for, uh, I think, a, it was a rescue mission. 
Uh, and also, you know, he was on a ship that got torpedoed and he was like stuck off the coast of South Africa for 10 days or something on a raft. So he went from having this experience that, you know, many people come out feeling patriotic about. And instead, interestingly, he came out of this and started to question the institution of war. He said in interviews that he realized that war was just an extension of racism. And it was essentially, it was permission to kill based on stereotyping. And, and you know, there has to be another way. And he credits both his experience in World War II, and I think also his experience just growing up Jewish, which, you know, especially in the 60s, and, you know, he grew up in Chicago, but especially in the 60s, I think, being Jewish was still very much being an other in a lot of ways, obviously not nearly as bad as being any other race uh, in the U.S. because, of course, the Jews could, quote, pass. But, you know, I think that he had a pretty clear sense of otherness. He was interested and motivated to understand other people and try and work towards things that he actually believed in. And so he was always politically minded. And, and yeah, as we as we go through these movies, you'll see that the stuff that he ended up choosing, especially once he got to a point very quickly where he could just pick and choose what he actually wanted to do, there's a very, very clear arc on what it is that he ends up actually shooting, which is even clearer when we get to the stuff that he directed himself. Right. Well, this movie, I mean, it is remembered above the other low-budget films he did in this period because the final scenes that deal with a prisoner being executed in the gas chamber, you know, it's really strong stuff. And it, it's there's a very clear anti-death penalty message in this film. But the movie leading up to the whole anti-death penalty message is also pretty strong stuff, too. It's about this priest, this Jesuit priest, played by Don Murray, who also co-wrote the screenplay for this film. And he is interested in, in prisoners' rights and, and making sure that people who make mistakes get second chances and that people who are thinking about committing crimes are maybe dissuaded from from a life of crime. Basically, he's just trying to keep bad kids who've seen some rough times from, from making wrong decisions. And a lot of what he does is just support ex-cons when they get out of prison and help them find jobs and, uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. But it kind of gets him in trouble with the law because uh, these petty crooks feel comfortable with him and he'll get some information on a crime that they're going to commit and he won't turn these guys into the police. He'll, you know, try and talk them out of it or keep them from getting hurt. He's a real humanitarian. And this particular story revolves around uh, Billy Lee Jackson, uh, played by Kira D'Elia in his first film. And he's a kid just out of prison who, who doesn't see any other option for life for himself other than committing more crimes. And so the hoodlum priest, Father Clark, you know, works really hard to get him a, a legit job and convince him that a straight and narrow life is the way to go. And, and it doesn't quite work out that way. He encounters a lot of you know, prejudice from people who, who think that because he's an ex-con, he can't be trusted. And so things go really sour for Billy Lee. And uh, Father Clark kind of gets dragged into it, has trouble with the law himself, almost gets kicked out of his church because of this, this work that he's doing. But yeah, what would you think of Hoodlum Priest? 
<laughs> I, you know, I was very unimpressed with Don Murray. I didn't realize until you just said that he co-wrote this that he was so involved because he's such a dopey character. <laughs> yeah, actually, he was writing under a pseudonym. Right, and I didn't think twice about it. I mean, overall, this movie has a really solidly progressive message about prison reform, which I appreciated, and I didn't I didn't really expect. It gets kind of preachy in that way. It has, like, a scene where they stop the action to sit around in a courtroom and allow Don Murray to make a really big speech about how capital punishment is murder and we're all going to be the murderers of these kids, you know, and that's great. And it's interesting to hear that coming out of a movie from 1961. And obviously this is still an issue that's very much alive and active today. So in that sense, I did enjoy seeing this. And I also have to say, Cure Delea, man. I was really impressed with old Cure in this movie. I feel like Cinema 60 has brought me closer to my appreciation for Kier Delea. And I think that what's sort of even funnier about that is I've always liked him. <laughs> like, I wasn't not a fan of his. Like, my text message noise is actually his voice <laughs> from 2010. It scares the shit out of me every single time. My God, it's full of stars. Is that it? <laughs> Every single time, yep. <laughs> but it's like the, my God, it's full of stars. So like, it's scare it scares the shit out of me whenever my phone goes off. So anyhow, I like Kier Delea. I am a fan of his. But this movie, and all of the stuff that he was in in the 60s beyond 2001, is actually, I'm so impressed with him. I just didn't, I didn't know. You know, I was happy with who I thought he was. And then... Between, like, David and Lisa in and, and this, the guy's got range, man. That guy, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he does a great job. And considering his character is, is really is also kind of dopey, <laughs> but he does a good job at it. Like, when, when he gets a, a chance to shine and even there's, like, a final shootout where he's really panicking, he doesn't know what to do. He does a good job with it. Like, he was believable to me, and I think that he really mm -hmm. kept this whole movie grounded because, yeah. it, you know, it wasn't coming from Don Murray. He sounds like he's, like, maybe from the East Coast, but the movie's meant to take place in, like, Missouri. <laughs> yeah. Well, the St. Louis locations in this are actually really impressive, and Haskell Wexler makes this movie look like a million bucks, uh, even though it was made for considerably less like the sound in the film is terrible it's you know it's clearly not made with much money but he has you know just the way he's lit the, these scenes and really has a sense of the atmosphere of the of these rundown st louis locations it's got a great feel like it, it looks great um and that the shootout that you're talking about in particular is is really like notable he's you, you've already got some of the the Haskell Wexler style there. Like he, you know, he shoots the, you know, abandoned tenement building where the shootout takes place from a distance. And it's just this sort of vista. And, and I, I feel like most of his movies, you always get this sort of, you know, it takes a step back and you see, especially in, you know, climactic scenes, you, you, you sort of get these shots of the characters in the film from a distance. You know, they look like ants in the frame, but it, he, he really wants to give you a sense of, place and and he does a great job with it 
the lighting in this movie is beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, it really is. You know, again, it's just like it, it, this is movie is really it's truly made by the cinematography because like, there's a lot of corniness in it. Otherwise, there's a couple of good lines. Like I may I'm, maybe I'm underselling it. Like I <laughs> there's a couple of good lines in this and, and there's a real there's a couple of memorable scenes. Like I like when the hoodlum priest gives a presentation to all of these like women at like a country club oh. or something. <laughs> And he's talking about housewives. Like, yeah. yeah. And he's like, you know, to a con, there's only two types of people, hoods and squares. And so when I call you all squares, you know, it's just like, <laughs> you know, this is dopey kind of thing. But, um, you know, and of course, they're all sort of scandalized by just just like the concepts that are happening. And this is like happening by a pool. And then Kier Delea is in that too, right? He like crashes it or something. He he doesn't go to the party, but he's hanging out in the parking lot because uh, he drove with with Father Clark there, and uh, and that's when he meets the rich socialite girl. Can't even remember her name. She doesn't make much of an impression. She's played by this model named Cindy Wood, who can't really act. You know, is very slight and pretty, and 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 that's about it. And she's just sort of there as this prize for Kier Delea for going straight for being a square. If he can keep his act together and not turn back to a life of crime, he can have the girl. I like this scene because it's like showing all these women sitting there staring at this priest. And then there later on, there's a scene of Kieran and this woman in, in the zoo, which is also shot really interestingly and fun. But it's also just like a really depressing zoo. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like in a kind of like a good visual juxtaposition. Just a little bit about like, the, you know, people in their cages, kind of obvious metaphor, but uh, but I, it works. I liked it. Yeah. Like, I know we're meant to be talking about the, the cinematography, but I'm like, freaking gear delay in this movie. There is a good line in the end where, you know, he ends up on death row. After freaking out, he has this total, like, meltdown about, oh, I don't want to kill anyone, but, you know, he doesn't know. He gets backed into a corner by the cops, and so it goes. And there's this good line where he says, instead of being on death row, he says, I wish I was just being born. Kind of... <laughs> Like, kind of the right balance between melodramatic and also me sitting here being like, well, that happens in 2001. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I didn't even make that connect. So that was very exciting for me. But I also, the whole gas chamber scene in general was really, it's shocking. Mm -hmm. it, it's shot in a really good way. And again, considering there's there's so many cheesy aspects of this movie, when it gets serious, it gets very serious, and it, and it really hits you in in the right sort of way. Well, the real problem with this movie is that it, it is just a message movie, and the drama sort of takes a back seat, and the characters take a back seat to just trying to tell this story. Like it's not just social justice for ex-cons and you know anti-death penalty. It's also it gets into the press. The biggest antagonist in this film is actually this press guy who uh, decides that he always got a story here by pointing out how Father Clark is actually helping criminals commit their crimes. And, and so in a theme that Haskell will revisit later, it's very anti-press, too, or at least the, you know, the sensationalism and exploitative nature of journalism. So that's a real beef that this film has, too. So it dramatically is pretty dull until the big heart-rending conclusion. But, but yeah, it's all right, and it looks great. Yeah, again, this this is a movie where, to the point of thinking of a cinematographer as the auteur instead of the director, the entire emotional heart of this film is owed to how it's shot. 
It's owed to the close-ups on the faces and expressions, and it's owed to the dramatic lighting, and it's owed to, you know, the how things are staged. Because it's very, very easy to undercut something that's serious by shooting it incorrectly. And in the same way that we've talked about in the past about comedies that are funny, but they're just shot incorrectly or edited incorrectly, and it just totally wrecks the whole thing. For this movie, it, it could have been, I mean, again, with despite the fact that I, I, I like the politics of it, it could have been a really forgettable film. And instead, it's memorable because of, I, I, I would have to really give it pretty much entirely to Haskell Wexler. Yeah, very, very dramatically lit. And I think that's what really makes this movie look like a much larger budget film than it is, is that he really spent a lot of time with the lighting more than anything, just making these interior scenes really striking looking. And that grabs your attention more than the performances. Well, after struggling for several years making these low-budget movies that, I mean, I haven't seen many of them, but presumably he worked his magic on, on most of them and made them look like better movies than they actually were, enough so that he got the attention of some big Hollywood types. Ilya Kazan grabbed him for his cinematographer when he wanted to make his very personal film, America, America. Hello! of his Greek uncle who grew up in Ottoman Turkey and, and eventually made the trip over to America. Ilya Kazan narrates this film and it's based on a book that he wrote about his uncle's experiences. But yeah, it's all shot on location and Wexler was the guy that, that Kazan wanted to bring along to really make his movie look like something special. And it worked. The movie got a lot of attention, you know, nominated for lots of things. I don't know if it won, but Eli Kazan considered it the best film he ever made. This was when Wexler really hit the big time making this film. You didn't love this one too much either, did you? <laughs> it's okay. I found it to be a bit of a slog, but it's certainly not to do with how it was shot because, again, it looks absolutely gorgeous. I love hyper close-ups on faces in movies, and I find myself a lot of the time, especially watching a lot of big-budget movies that come out now, I find myself wondering, like, like I can't see the character. <laughs> you know, like, there's such a focus on the background or the effects, and you lose the humanity in it. And I think that there is just nothing that gives you that better than, like, a tight close-up on someone's expression. And if you're halfway talented you can do that without it being cheesy or weird and you can do that in a really fluid way again for america america i felt that the cinematography did most of the talking for the emotional aspect of this movie that otherwise is very arm's length considering considering this is meant to be such a personal film which it clearly is it has that kind of that epic feel which it is because it's quite long <laughs> But I don't feel any sort of connection to its main character. I never really got a clear sense of who he was as a person other than he was somewhere he didn't want to be and he had a dream to go to America. And then, you know, he does everything to make that dream come true. To me, it was just a bit flat in that sense. But that said, everything else about this is fairly layered and interesting, but it just doesn't grip me in that way. There isn't much of a plot. It's just so episodic. You know, that's... Part of what I really like about this film, actually, is like it feels like 
these are stories that were sort of told repeatedly in his family. And there's, oh, there's a story of when this happened and there's a story of when this happened. And then, and it's all kind of jammed together in one film. And, and I, I like how episodic it is. And I, I got really emotionally invested in it, but, um, but it basically just tells the story of this kid, this, this Greek living in Turkey that's been conquered by the Ottoman Empire. So Greeks have become sort of second-class citizens there. They're not as, you know, they're they're more like than the Armenians who cause the Turks more trouble. They're more rebellious and uh, the Turks don't like the Armenians at all. The, the, the Greeks they can sort of tolerate, but it's still living as a Greek in Ottoman Turkey is tough. Being looked down upon by the ruling class, you know, means that his family is is struggling to survive. Uh, every, every day is a struggle for them. So his dream is to just go get to America. Like, you know, as a young child, he had this dream of going to America and he never lost the dream. And when his Armenian friend is killed by the Turks, Stavros has just had enough and decides at that moment he'll do anything to get to America. He begs his grandmother for all her, her savings so she can get to America. But you know, at that point, he goes to Constantinople and tries to make money working for his uncle. He takes all his family's possessions so he can invest this money in his uncle's business. But all of this stuff gets stolen on the way there. And it's one sort of tragic event after another. And even once he's on the ship going to America, you're not sure if he's actually going to get in. Right. Except that we know it's Ilya Kazan's uncle and Ilya Kazan lives <laughs> in America. So. Spoiler. I'm I'm curious to hear why that was gripping to you, <laughs> because um, for me, at least, I mean, there were definitely scenes that I found memorable or even disturbing in this. One was when Stavros ends up killing this guy who's sort of following him along the trail and named Abdul, who he briefly goes into business with, I think. I <laughs> totally forgot already. But um, and this this Turkish dude even admits that he's shocked that Stavros hasn't tried to kill him yet because of how awful he's been treating him. And then he proceeds to mock Stavros for being too scared to kill him. Uh, and he goes like right for the masculinity, which of course is finally one step too far. So uh, when this, this jerk berates him and then goes off to pray for a bit, Stavros finally snaps and he does this jump that that is cinematically just like it makes you gasp because it's just you you sort of can see it coming. But the way that the shadow falls in his face and the way that the camera is placed below him so it looks like he's jumping onto it and the quick edits between this like startled donkey that you know triggers the viewer into jumping it's just it's one of these scenes that feels shockingly violent even though you don't the actual struggle is only happening we only see it happening from afar uh and the sequence is is excellent because of how it's shot how it's visually showing you this this sort of turn and this and this change in our main character, a sort of break from being the innocent bystander to being the the guy who who really will do anything to to get to where he needs to go, and you also kind of are rooting for him. You're like, just kill that guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, I mean, you know, to be fair, Abdul was going to to cut some money out of uh, out of Stavros's belly that he had swallowed, so. It was pretty much a... He didn't know, have much of a choice. Either Stavros or Abdul sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. There's another scene later on where he finally decides to lose his virginity and he shacks up with a prostitute who, uh, of course, robs him blind. 
and the cousin comes to to help avenge him and ends up beating just beating the shit out of this woman to the point where you know she's screaming about how you're trying to to run her out of business and it's just the whole thing is disturbing and, and the whole thing is memorable. I mean, pretty much I, I like everything that I found really memorable in this were moments of like intense violence or screaming, <laughs> you know, like he gets married and, and then he has this arranged marriage with a wife who kind of already knows in her head that he, his heart isn't really into this marriage, even though it's a pretty comfortable living situation, but he feels like he's his life belongs in america and he won't he won't give up his dream and of a new start and there's this one scene where they they are given a new apartment from her family and as they're both finally alone for the first time she sort of recants this dream she has that you know is all about just metaphors for how he's gonna leave her kind of stuff and she gets really emotional and he just kind of stands there you know stoically and and takes it and he's like mostly in shadow for this because he knows he's being like a like a kind of a terrible person. He's you know, he's being selfish, but um you know, and then and then the the scenes on the ship, there's all of these really great close ups on faces, again, that really work to show you the intensity of getting to the end of this journey that's still not certain by uh you know, by hyper focusing on things like all of the sweat running down people's faces. You feel icky watching this because you feel like you're packed on this ship with like hundreds of of unwashed masses. <laughs> you know, it really gets you it, it really makes you feel the intensity of like not only stepping out of an already uncertain realm into an even more uncertain and potentially deadly one that you literally can't escape because it's a boat. And and even though there's potentially this payoff at the end for him, this escape to America, you can't watch these scenes and not just think like, God, what a, what a horrible place to be stuck for a month or however long it takes. What struck me about this movie is that it's really kind of surprisingly feminist considering you're following this guy you know the entire time it's just this this kid's story and any women in it are just sort of the scene with his grandmother who's this tough woman who thinks that you know Stavros's father is weak because he lets the the Turks walk all over him and Stavros kind of agrees with her and so she's sort of this image of the strong woman but then you go back to Stavros's house and you watch his father belittling his mother and you're meant to really kind of be horrified at the treatment of women in in this culture which really surprised me like I, I i thought that you know i'd seen this movie once before quite a long time ago and it, it it struck me as sort of a i remember it being as the conditions that these people had to live under were terrible but it was a celebration of this greek culture in turkey but it really isn't it's very critical of it particularly in how awfully women are treated in this culture and uh, and that really you know, jumped out even the prostitute that you're talking about she steals Stavros's money, but then goes on to explain that she she had to. She hasn't been able to pay her rent, and she doesn't make enough from being a prostitute to even pay her own rent. You know, and so she can never escape from this life because she's always in debt, and so you feel bad for her. And then you know the merchant's daughter that Stavros is going to and ends up marrying just so he can get the money for this this ticket on this ship to america that scene even you, you just mentioned how it struck you is you you really get you know inside her head and she becomes sort of the emotional center of the movie for this scene like it's it's one of the the most affecting scenes when she knows 
she wants Davros to stay with her and but knows that he's going to leave her. And yeah, it's really pretty moving. And finally, you get Mrs. Kababian, the wife of this rich Turk who lives in America and has come back to Constantinople to you know buy rugs or whatever. And Stavros becomes her lover you know, because her, her husband isn't satisfying her. And this whole part of the story is about how a woman's sexual desire and a need for that kind of attention. And, it, it, you know, just scene after scene, this movie ends up being about how crappy it is to be a woman in, in this culture. I guess. <laughs> just felt more like American propaganda to me than it really felt like a commentary on women. It just felt more like, look at the old country. Ah, glad we left. <laughs> I just didn't feel like I really got enough time with, with anyone other than Stavros, who's just flat. I just felt like he just really was this sort of one-sided type of character, which I don't, I don't really want to blame his actor, who's played by... Stathis Yalales, I'm I'm gonna butcher that, and I apologize. <laughs> he he has this sort of like James Dean pout, and he and he kind of just sits there dour all the time, <laughs> and he just never you I never really felt like I understood him, and and you know that scene that you were saying with the wife, I didn't find that scene. Mm. I, I mean, I felt bad for her, but I didn't really find that scene to be terribly emotional. More than you know, she's going on about you know because in this. And she she gets nervous that she's being used, which of course she is, you know, and she doesn't want to leave her family and, and here's her family showering him with possessions and gifts and he doesn't have anything to offer. Uh, and she wants a husband because that's all she, you know, knows or cares about. And she starts to realize that he's not interested and she talks about, as I mentioned, she talks about this dream where he's like literally sucking her dry, you know, and I just kind of felt like this entire film, that's kind of all he does is is suck everyone dry, which is basically the nature of this type of movie anyhow. I mean, you know, when you're portraying dog-eat-dog worlds of tragic poverty and misery or having a character stuck in some place they physically can't get out of, it is what it is. You know, obviously not everyone is completely miserable is going to be opining about philosophy <laughs> or what have you, but... Or like, you know, their personal preferences and style or, you know, something mundane. I don't know. But I just didn't really understand his character. Considering we, we see so much about his family and his upbringing, I, I didn't find him terribly sympathetic. Mm. And so by the end of this movie, which again is, is quite long, I just didn't. And again, I, you know the ending, obviously, but I didn't really care whether or not he got there which I've got to say, I also liked in a sense, because I kind of like the idea of a three hour epic being about like a really unremarkable person. <laughs> I kind of like the attention paid to your typical immigrant that is coming to the US that doesn't have to be a hero and in fact can be kind of a jerk or bare minimum, just like a mediocre person. Though I doubt that that was going on in Ilya Kazan's head when he's talking about his own relative. He clearly thinks that this was some sort of triumph over uh, circumstance. But I I don't know. At the end of the day, I just I just wasn't compelled by by him. And I and I just think there's a, for me and this is definitely my own personal problem. But I I just when when these movies are just about misery heaped on misery heaped on misery, it it, it doesn't. It doesn't compel me. Yeah. I thought he worked just fine as a 
audience surrogate. He's blank enough that you can kind of project whatever you want onto him, but he's he's got a pleasing face. He's likable enough. As a person, he's fairly unremarkable. All he's got is his drive to get to America, and that sort of is behind everything he does. But you still, I don't know, I wanted him to get to America. And I was, <laughs> Eli Kazan definitely portrays him as a flawed person. He does things that aren't very nice, and uh, Eli Kazan doesn't shy away from that. But I still, I think, I don't know, I think he works as a character to, to you know, keep us focused on this journey. And not just a small part of that was how you know, beautiful the location photography was in this film. They started out shooting in Turkey, but the, the Turkish government was worried that it was portraying them as uh, cruel and awful, which it was. So, uh, you know, they were right about that. <laughs> but uh, Ilya Kazan decided, uh, we better move this to, to somewhere else. So they uh, they went over to Greece to, to shoot the, the second part of the, the movie. So... All the Constantinople stuff is shot in Greece, and but you know a lot of the landscape stuff you get in the first part is is definitely Turkey, and it's a great looking film. The landscape photography is striking, but it's even more visually arresting when it gets to Constantinople or whatever city it is that's standing in for 1890s Constantinople. These busy streets filled with paupers, people struggling to survive, and it's. I mean, a lot of it is the art direction and a lot of it is just the way that, you know, Kazan has crowds of people in the streets, but it's really exciting to look at. And I love the location photography in this, you know, when they're down on the docks and, you know, these, these laborers who are struggling with their, these giant packages to get onto the ship or, or, you know, any of these, you know, odd jobs that, that Stavros is doing, you know, endlessly to make enough money to get a ticket for the ship. You know, the the grime and the sweat and the, the poverty. Wexler just does an amazing job capturing that. And it's got, you know, a lot of the, the same dramatic lighting that, that Hildum Priest did. Wexler has definitely got this documentary style. Like, he'll shift to, to handheld camera at times where it really is like a you are there kind of feeling to it, but it's also so carefully lit. I don't know, it, it manages to, to have both a documentary feel and a just really expensive, you know, slick look, looking Hollywood style at the same time. It's funny because watching this movie in particular, I found myself thinking of Cassavetti's faces. And then I realized that Wexler had actually also worked on that. And I was like, ah, it's all coming full circle. <laughs> I uh, I think there's actually a, a five minute sequence that Wexler shot for that film. Yeah, but he was still a friend and a consult for Cassavetes. And I think that it's mm -hmm. it's very clearly because of the way that they both are shooting faces, it's not it's not exactly the same, but there's just a lot of shots in this that, that reminded me of, of that film in particular. But yeah. I'm with you. It's it's an interesting mix of, of that documentary and, and very clearly staged that, you know, is always made better by not being studio bound. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there are a couple of process shots and rear projection that really jumps out because everything else is such amazing location stuff that when it does resort to the rear projection, it, it's really disappointing. But there isn't much of it. Yeah. Well, from America, America, Wexler pivoted to actual America with a political drama, The Best Man from 
buddy Franklin Schaffner. He did Planet of the Apes and Patton and Papillon and you know, some other stuff. Not a huge name in the biz, but he's, he's done some notable stuff. More notable is that with a script written by Gore Vidal, at least more notable to me because I like Gore Vidal. Actually, I was a little on the fence about covering this now because not that we could have done anything about it because it made it, you know, make sense in the timeline. But I kind of wanted to save this for like an episode about like elections because there's quite a few interesting 60s movies about elections. And uh, this is definitely one of the, the better ones. Well, it ties in so much to Medium Cool, which we're going to talk about later that we, we had to discuss this one. Yeah, we had to. It's it's too tied into everything. So this stars uh, Henry Fonda and Cliff Robertson as two leading candidates for uh, the presidential nomination for a party that they don't disclose. I mean, I mean, it's a movie about an election. It's a movie about who's going to be the best man for the job, right? It's in the title. It's kind of hard to explain because what it, it what it ends up really being about is the a type of person and the insider view of politics. We get all of the fanfare and we get the projected image that's being sold to the media or the voters. And then we get the closed door discussion, which is more frank and more insightful and interesting. And so this is kind of like, I don't know, Aaron Sorkin built an entire career trying to do stuff like this, but he never did it as well. (laughs) (laughs) He's clearly seen this movie several times, though. Yes, it's made all the better for Gorvidal's sharp commentary and sh- sharp eye with this type of satire. It, you know, it, it could only have been him. Yeah, so I mean, like, you know, Henry Fonda plays this toe-the-line kind of safe candidate. He's a former Secretary of State. He's really entrenched in, in the system. He's not looking to shake anything up. Meanwhile, Cliff Robertson plays this kind of up-and-comer who is younger and more energized and has a lot of really sharp takes on things his image is basically like injecting energy and and shaking it up and and actually getting things done but behind the scenes he's just this kind of like just a piece of shit (laughs) he's just like a super unlikable person joe mccarthy type yeah he has no friends he is just like all about winning then there's Fonda's wife, who's played by Margaret Layton. Basically, you know, he's been Fonda, even though he's this sort of fuddy-duddy type. He's very Henry Fonda. You know what I mean? There's a reason they they <laughs> cast Henry Fonda in this role. He's that kind of good American boy, but you know, he's also for for Fonda. Kind of interestingly, you know, he's cheating on his wife. He you know is clearly doing these kind of backdoor deals about things, and he's not corrupt. <laughs> But he's like that level of corrupt. You know what I mean? He's just not he's not as sincere as he portrays himself to be. And he's he certainly has strayed from his ideals. And he's certainly entrenched in in keeping things status quo. So then there's also the president who's played by Lee Tracy. And he kind of comes and visits each candidate because, of course, whenever the president endorses a candidate, then they have a a better chance of, of winning the nomination for their party. And so as he goes to each person, he kind of like, you know, tries to give them a chat and tries to feel them out while they're trying to feel him out as as to whether or not they're going to get this job. And, uh, you know, when he goes to Fonda, Fonda just realizes that the president isn't going to back him. Then when he goes to uh, Robertson, 
you know, he tries to give him some sort of good natured, but like he, he's also he's still clearly feeling him out. So he's giving him good natured advice, but he's being fairly condescending as the elder statesman in the room. And Robertson just does not take kindly to that whatsoever and ends up just biting his head off and making threats directly to Tracy, which in the end, Tracy realizes, I'm uh, fuck this guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So this entire film is about this back and forth. We're watching this behind the scenes planning of if we get this endorsement, then we're all in. And if we don't, how do we proceed? Um, and eventually this all kind of culminates in Henry Fonda coming into some incredibly damning information to do with Cliff Roberts uh, to Joe Cantwell's past. So it becomes this political and moral struggle of. Should I use this information that will not only ruin this man's political career, but his entire life forever? Or should I just hold on to it and lose the election? And, you know, what's really more important here? Is it getting this nomination or is it letting the right man be chosen for the right time? But then as we see how God awful Cantwell actually is, it then becomes this question of, do I need to take on this job I'm not actually dying to have in order just, just to keep this man from gaining more power than he needs? Which is certainly a topic and, and concept that is incredibly relevant to the current day. What did you feel about this movie, Bart? I thought it was great. I, I like this movie. It's uh, And it does feel like incredibly relevant now. Cantwell is this do anything to win sort of populist Trump type. You know, he has no qualms about using this information about Russell, William Russell, uh, Fonda's characters. You know, had a had a mental breakdown at some point and he was going to use this to, you know, sort of lock in his his nomination and uh, and the, the former president, Hochstetter, uh, Lee Tracy, who was, who was nominated for his performance in this. And he's, he's good, but I think part of that was he was on his way out. I think he died shortly after this movie came out. Yeah, so you sort of got this push and pull between Fonda, who is, uh, you know, just wants to do the right thing. Like in his personal life, he's not, <laughs> hasn't done all the right things. But, but you know, really, he, he, you know, politically, he's just very much about doing the right thing. But that's sort of Hockstetter's problem with that, him, that he like intellectualizes everything. He's, he's just not decisive enough. He's always worried about doing the right thing. And then, you know, hems and haws and is a bit of a waffler. And that's why he was going to support Cantwell, but Cantwell is just such an immoral creep that he decides he can't support him either. So he doesn't support either candidate. So it is, it just sort of comes down to whether Russell will use his information against Cantwell or if Cantwell will use his information against Russell. And it's about two different types of politician that still exist today. Vidal had written this play in 1960, so it's you know basically about the Kennedy-Nixon election, although the Fonda character is, is more based on Adlai Stevenson. And actually, Cliff Robertson is more of a Kennedy type. It's sort of a mix of Richard Nixon and, and, and John F. Kennedy, in a way. It feels very much like the, you know, the issues that were going on in the, in the 1960 election. But yeah, it also just shows that Nothing ever seems to change in American politics. The same types of candidates just keep getting, you know, the, the country's always been sort of split equally in two between supporting these two different types of candidates. And, uh, and it's fascinating for that reason. There are so many good cutting lines in this. As, as you said, it's so reflective. Like you could you could drop these into any current day political discourse and they'd still be just as bitingly funny and completely relevant. 
I love that line in the beginning with the press hounding Henry Fonda and he quotes Bertrand Russell about, you know, people think they have less to fear from a stupid man than an intelligent one, but it's actually the opposite way around. And it's like, <laughs> boy, howdy, more, <laughs> more than ever. <laughs> that initial closed door talk between Tracy and Fonda is also just so good. I love their chat about God and the, the stark contrast between their personal beliefs and their public beliefs with, with Tracy as the current, you know, outgoing president asking Fonda whether or not he believes in God and then confessing that he himself doesn't and he only believes in humanity. But he has that line, too, about, like, well, you know, back in the day, like, we get to pour God over everything like ketchup. It's like, ah, it's just chef kiss perfection. And the way all this is, like, weaved in to talk about both the president's illness but also establish these, like, core ideological beliefs that you know, work both on a character level and a philosophical level. Like, that's the type of character work I want in general, like in all movies. Like, that's just exactly what I want to see. I'd love to see it. That degree of honesty. Because mm -hmm. you know damn well this is the kind of shit that happens, Stuart. It's like he's probably listening in and, and writing this shit down and then going in and, you know, writing a script. Like, I, like I, these things could be easily lifted wholesale. Also, I love like they, they kind of get into this idea about like, you know, it's one thing to, to fool the voters. It's another thing when you take yourself as that seriously. And then just really showing that clear struggle between the private and the public when it comes to political life, you know, which is something I always find interesting because I on one hand, there's no way to be a politician without, you know, it's inherent. <laughs> <laughs> it's just you can't both be a person with an opinion and represent the masses you know mm -hmm. like that you have to you're, you're being elected to represent the will of the people of your constituents and obviously well if you're not like totally awful you you want to run on a platform that's true to yourself with the hope that your opinion is popular enough to get you elected and then you use your sense of moral judgment to lead within the boundaries of law. So now you're operating on like several levels of what's legally and constitutionally sound, what's morally correct, the will of the people who elected you, and then how you interpret the definitions of all three of those things, at which point now you're getting back into your own personal opinions which is wrong so you know like there's this this loop about this and i i think this movie does such a great job of displaying that closed doors plotting you know these aren't people that are inherently duplicitous or schemingly evil as much as like the job calls <laughs> for operating on on multiple levels so to a degree, knowing when to turn your humanity on and off it just becomes this like clinical decision you know, you can't always be yourself. You can't always lead with gut instinct or compassion. It's just not, it's not practical as far as getting things done within this profession. And, you know, the, the brilliance of the best man is that it zooms right into that idea that the biggest corrupting factor in this precarious balance is really, it's just ego. If you start to believe your own bullshit, then that's when you become that villain. <laughs> like there's that line, I think it was Tracy talking to Cantwell um, but saying, you know, it's par for the course to fool the people, but it's bad when you take yourself seriously. And, and that line is basically the line for Tracy or Fonda's Russell, 
that this idea that withholding some information for the good of the people to uphold and maintain belief in the system is is the line of righteousness. Whereas for Robertson's Cantwell, you know, he's operating only for himself. He's operating on the idea that, well, if the people want me, it's because I'm amazing. And, you know, whatever my gut instinct tells me, I'll follow because that's why they elected me. And, you know, it's not it's not for his ability to maintain the system. It's his ability to, like, you know, somehow pioneer solo uh, slashing and burning through hundreds of years of, like, carefully overbuilt <laughs> policy to carve out a space where he's the sole source of people's happiness. Not policy, not well-run government, but him. And that's it's just it's brilliant. It's just it's just a brilliant portrait. It's it's just it's a brilliant script. Yeah, I mean it's it's a great play and for that reason, well maybe not for that reason, but I feel like this movie is is almost more of a great play than a great movie and it's it's definitely the least impressive work by Haskell Wexler of any of the movies that we watched. A lot of it is it's just really flatly lit in the in just in various hotel rooms, not very exciting. There's certain sequences that are great, like when there are exterior shots where there's a lot of like you know that that like you were saying the West Wingish sort of walking and talking these tracking shots where it's dollying backwards as as the characters are talking about whatever it is, and you know you've got these swarms of people behind them, and the, there are a few shots like that that are really impressive, but most of it is just you know this not very expressively lit hotel room scenes and. uh it's a it's a little dull to look at, frankly. I mean, the most exciting parts are when they're actually at the Democrat. Or it's fairly clear that this is supposed to be the Democratic Party, but they never say it when they're at the party convention to to decide who's going to be the the presidential nominee. And in, in the convention hall, that's the stuff that's really memorable, and it really feels like a documentary in those scenes. Like you're really in this convention hall uh, with these mobs of people and it, you know switches to handheld at that point and it it feels you know you're like oh okay this is haskell wexler who's who shot this movie As- aside from the fact that the the politics in in this are really progressive you're cl- clearly on the side of the of the more liberal of these two candidates the one who is more interested in doing the right thing than winning clearly vidal's on his side and and wexler was drawn to this material because politically that's how it's oriented but yeah, it's I, really just in in those those convention hall scenes. It felt like his work to me. I, you know, I I'm with you. It, it's definitely it's it's less memorable when they're standing around talking in bland rooms. Even though I think the dialogue kind of does all the heavy lifting, so it never really loses my interest. But to Wexler's credit, I I think there's a, the clear shift in dynamics is fairly purposeful. In the convention hall versus in these other in these rooms, these sort of locked doors, you know, like there's a really interesting you feel like you're behind the stage of a rock concert. You know, you you get that sense that you, you really are in these green rooms, mostly just to hide from being in the public eye. Like, um, oh, who is it? The woman who's like constantly haranguing Russell. It's just every time a door opens, she busts her way in. He's like, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> and Southern, yeah, as, as Sue Ellen Gamage, one of, the, one of the chairs of the party. And she's, yeah, she's a really colorful character in this film. Yeah. And whenever she opens a door, it's always like through a crush of media. And then once the door closes, she's just this like sore thumb and an otherwise calm, boring motel room tranquility. 
Um, but yeah, and then and then of course when it gets down to whether or not Fonda, I don't want to fully spoil this in a way, though I also feel like it's kind of worthwhile mentioning how they get this dirt on Cantwell, and it ends up being also really interesting as far as even the mid sixties for for how Fonda's character considers not spilling the beans because basically they come into some information about some potential eyebrow raising sexual proclivities. Well, a homosexual, it's actually the first film to ever first American film to use the word homosexual. Right. So Fonda realizes, well, if I, if I put this out here, not it's going to ruin his life period. Not, not just political career. It's going to ruin his life. And the movie kind of leaves the door open as to if the allegations are true or not. But I think it's notable that they show Russell struggling with that information, you know, uh, considering because I mean, it's a, it, in 64, that's damning stuff, you know, and I think that the, your average Joe Nobody would probably be like, oh, he's gay, whatever. Screw that guy. But Fonda kind of struggles with it. You know, he never really makes any overt judgment call on how he feels about it. Which is obviously, you know, like a subliminal message from Gore Vidal. But, uh, you know, the only place that they can come together to talk about that, because that's such a hot topic and because that's such a a dangerous topic, they have to go all the way down into the basement of this convention center, which is just like, you know, the most boring (laughs) setting that you could possibly have. I mean, like, it's the basement. It's just, you know, pipes and and hallways and... uh, you know, but but Wexler keeps it. He keeps this really tight focus on their faces. He gets this really great these angles in the background, even when you know, again, the background is as boring as sin. But he uses that, like you know, the the conversation is so scintillating, and the background is so weirdly looming, considering how otherwise, you know, unremarkable it is. But you you get these like giant pipes, and you get this. You get the sense that you're sort of down in the dungeon, you know, conversation that can't can't be had in one of those com rooms upstairs and certainly can't be had in public on the political floor. So it becomes interesting just for the fact that, you know, this is them sort of escaping and it's the one place that they can they can be to talk about this. So so, I, you know, I it, I actually think that they did quite a good he did quite a good job with this considering that it is essentially it could have been a one room play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure I'm sure it was very simple staging uh, when it was originally produced. Doesn't doesn't have to have all the uh, all the various locations that it does, but it uh, it uses them effectively. I just don't think it looks that exciting, really, compared to the rest of the movies we talk about. Well, the next film is it's kind of a short film. It's like an hour long, but it is worthwhile noting because it was the first feature directed by Haskell Wexler. And this is a a straight up documentary, which is called The Bus from 1965. And this, you know, talk about being stuck in in one boring location. (laughs) (laughs) This is an entire documentary that takes place on a bus. (laughs) 
heading from San Francisco to the famous uh, March, March on Washington. And it is, it's great, quite frankly. I mean, it's very clearly a, uh, a low budget, bare bones crew. But considering, you know, the fact that the vast majority of this is, is just him trying to figure out how to make a bus look interesting. He he does a great job with it, honestly. And the crowd that he's following is is also kind of intriguing. It's this this group of of young people. Actually, it's a it's a mixed race and also mixed age group, which is kind of fun because there's quite a few conversations of, you know, young and old and, and white and black and even um, a couple of, of Asian Americans. And, you know, this kind of interesting look at, at who was who felt moved enough to actually travel on a bus from San Francisco to Washington to to stand up for civil rights. And this movie is really, it's just like Wexler trying to capture a vibe. There's no overall narrative, you know, there's not one person leading us through this film, though we, we kind of follow this uh, this one girl. I think it, it focuses mostly on uh, just like starting with her and kind of ending with her. But for the most part, it really is about just these, these various conversations that we overhear. And even the camera itself is positioned in a way that, that feels like it's overhearing and, and not just, you know, this isn't people looking into the camera and talking about their feelings or something like that. For the most part, it, it's shot between bus seats, like as if you were sitting and, and looking over your shoulder and, and seeing these conversations happening. And there's a lot of shots of looking out of the window and looking at the ground, watching things, you know, kind of fly by looking up at the weather and, and overhearing other people's conversations that are interesting and engaging and passionate. It's pretty clear that these are semi-staged at least, you know, obviously they know a camera's pointed at them. And, and I, I always get a kick out of older documentaries where people are even less themselves because <laughs> they don't really understand uh, how to, how to act in front of a camera period. Like they just let people get like this weird stage fright. You know, it's a little stilted in parts, but, um, and the sound is really, really rough, but also I, you know, I just feel bad for the sound guy, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like what? You do get that mic that, that in people's faces all the time and they're, they're not trying to hide that boom at all. No, and it's just you know, right there recording. There was no way for this to, to sound good. Honestly, it just would, wasn't going to happen. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. We You hear a lot of really interesting conversations. And for the most part, I, I would say this is very light documentary. Like there's nothing outrageous happening. I mean, like there are a couple of arguments or I would say more heated discussions. You know, it's like typical. It's like white people pussyfooting around issues that the that black people are getting fired up about, you know, and, and everyone agrees. But, you know, just how much they agree is, is of course, the the thing that they're sort of bickering over. But, you know, it, it ends up being just kind of this really sweet tribute to the passion and, and the excitement of coming in and marching in Washington. What did you, what did you feel about? That? I thought it was great. I, I mean, it's really just a, you know, a, a slice of, 1963 like this really big event that you know sort of one of one of the two major defining events of 1963 in, in america i actually i mean i thought the people on the bus sort of at a certain point seemed to get used to the camera and the microphone being in their faces all the time and loosened up but when they would go off the bus and talk to some the people who would like you know engage with the the, the freedom riders because they you know it's got this big march on washington sign on the side of the bus and like 
So people will come up and say, oh, this, this is great. You're going to, to DC. And, but, and some of these people outside the bus seemed a little awkward in front of the camera, but there are also some, you know, really interesting conversations. It is just like your slice of life sort of thing. And you bring up a lot of interesting issues that, you know, people were only really just starting to talk about in 1963. One of the most interesting conversations is with, uh, with the first bus driver who's, who's white. It's a three day trip and they switch bus drivers every day. Um, so they can just drive, you know, nonstop from San Francisco to DC. And the first bus driver is, he's sympathetic to the cause, um, but he's also, you know, saying things like, oh, he's concerned that the, all these black protesters in, in D.C. will make a lot of, you know, white people who are sympathetic to the cause nervous and, and could do more harm than good. And just certain, like, you sort of see the the, the evolution of liberals getting used to the idea of, of what equal rights means, what what a non-segregated society means and that's really fascinating the the most striking moment for me is you, know, you spend the first 45 minutes of this of this hour-long documentary 50 you know even longer you know it's only the last maybe 10 minutes that are actually at the march in in uh, in dc but you spend all this time on this idealistic bus with this you know totally integrated group of people who all are fighting for the same cause and all having sing-alongs and and you just get this vision of what society should be like with you know blacks whites asian americans you know everybody just sort of united in a cause but when they get off the bus in dc you you see like all of a sudden it's nothing but the sea of black faces you know just singing and marching and protesting and you know it's it's a real kind of emotional wallop where you're like Oh yeah, th- this is actually you know sort of lulled into this sort of idealism, but but when you know when you actually get to D.C., you sort of get smacked in the face by what this is really about. Clearly, what Wexler had in mind too, like there isn't much of a structure to this thing, but he he wants you to see all of the black faces in this march, and you know wants you to recognize that everybody should be in support of this cause, black, you know, no matter what what color your skin but this is you know this is a black movement and he really you know lets you lets you know it at the end of the film i thought it was great it's easy to watch and it's it's too bad it's not more known because it really is just sort of a, a perfect little time capsule yeah i mean this is the type of documentary like you said it's the type of thing where it makes me wonder like when when people like to shit on movies that are pre-1980s or whatever you know like they i'm like don't how how do you watch a film like this and and dismiss this because i'm with you it's just so radiant you know you really understand the the weight of what this march meant and you don't get it so much on the bus though it is as you mentioned i i found like all of that that dialogue where it's just like white people having theoretical reactions to like really practical situations that black people are laying out for them like um that one woman is is saying you know if someone was going to kill your husband how would you react and the white girl is like well i'm not i would i'm sure that i would try my best to be nonviolent, you know and it's like yeah. oh. <laughs> and then later on you have this other guy talking about someone he knew he was like a younger black man he says that somebody put a lit cigarette in his ear and then he, he took a a week to step back and figure out if he could be nonviolent after experiencing that again and 
the, the as he tells the story the this guy you know eventually comes comes back to realizing okay I, i'm gonna i'm gonna stick with nonviolence, but like that it's just such a hor- horrific horrendous story that you know that that anyone could choose nonviolence after an experience like that is is heroic in itself and you know so it, it's interesting just to to overhear these conversations and then to to then see the impact of this and really feel the impact of it and even with this low budget you know even in spite of the fact that this is such a loose documentary it's really awesome. <laughs> it really is great. And it really gets you a really clear understanding of, of what this stuff was actually like on the ground. And, and also, you know, realizing just how much, again, we have and haven't changed and, and how much, you know, how far we have to come. And, and again, that sort of weird, like those weird baby steps that, that white people are still taking over these situations about like, okay, well, it's not cool if you kill that person, but overall, the people that are killing people, they're fine. You know, it's like these sort of like we still end up in the same dialogue. So, uh, yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I found this really great. I thought this was awesome. What I found really interesting is that Martin Luther King Jr.'s name is not mentioned once in the film. And it really made me realize, like they talk about all the, the strong civil rights leaders, like not mentioning anybody in particular by name, I don't think. But you realize that this is really like the March on Washington is where King, you know, got the attention of the entire nation. Like he didn't, people I'm sure were aware of, of what he was doing, but you know, he wasn't like the face of the civil rights movement uh, until this March. And, uh, and that, that really became clear just in, in the fact that, you never, you don't see his image or his name, hear his name at all in this thing. It's uh, watching watching history happen. It's great. Which is why it's all sort of the funnier to to go from this movie into the next one, which I think is just such a <laughs> slap a slap in the face. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, but but before uh, Wexler went on to make Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which he ended up winning his first Academy Award for, he. Uh, he shot and produced The Loved One, a Tony Richardson movie based on the Evelyn Waugh novel. And uh, But we're going to skip that one because we, we have other plans for that movie. I don't know if it's going to be a ter- Terry Southern episode or, or Robert Morris, but this is a it's one of Jenna's favorites. So we're going to we're going to save it for for another episode and, and jump right into Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, 1966. by Mike Nichols, based on the play by Edward Albee. And the screenplay is not credited to Albee, but it's pretty much word for word the play. So he he wrote this movie. And I mean, this is one of the all-time great classic movies. Every, I, I can't imagine anybody would be tuning into this podcast if they haven't seen Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Was this your first time seeing it, though? No, it was and not. Not to, not to out you, but... Oh, it wasn't. But I went in with an open mind and found it was just as god-awful as the first time I'd seen it. <laughs> I, I don't I don't see how that's possible, but... <laughs> I just... Uh, uh, I, I love this movie. I mean, 
know, I, I will say the one thing I've always loved about this movie is the cinematography. And Wexler, to his credit, when he won Best Cinematography, he'd always thank his gaffer and his crew yep. and, and acknowledge how filmmaking is an inherently cooperative art. Final award for Best Black and White Cinematography in a Film in the Academy Awards. They stopped giving out that award after this. Yeah, and it's amazing to think how it almost never was because Jack Warner was like dead set on this being shot in color for money reasons. But uh, apparently Mike Nichols insisted on black and white in part because he thought practically it would be easier to age Elizabeth Taylor, you know, in makeup using black and white cinematography, but also in part because he wanted to make a point or so we claim make a point about how this was this was not literal uh, he thought keeping it in black and white would give enough distance so that it would make you consider this film to be something about life instead of just a generic story, which like, I don't know, like, I guess. Um, but it, it, it might also just have been that Mike Nichols thought that cinematographer Harry Stradling, uh, who had been assigned to this project by Warner uh, and did, you know, Streetcart Named Desire and My Fair Lady and had a, a ton of expertise, but... Uh, apparently Mike Nichols just thought he was like a total jerk <laughs> with no taste. Um, because, and, and he had already been hip to Wexler by Norman Jewison, who had suggested that Wexler shoot screen tests for Virginia Woolf. And he liked what he did. So when it was time to shoot the full film, he had invited Wexler and Stradling to a screening of eight and a half mm -hmm. just to gauge their reactions. And when the film was over, Stradling like dismissively said it was shit. And so Nichols immediately warmed to Wexler <laughs> and uh you know watching this movie you're like thank god he did because it's straight up it, it's iconic and the one thing that I've, I've always appreciated about this film really is the fact that it's just a master class in turning a clearly one-room play adaptation into a genuinely living breathing cinematic production through those like tight close-ups the slow zoom push-ins the tracking shots like he manages to get across that like feeling of being trapped in a house that sort of claustrophobia without ever feeling static you never feel like the camera's trapped with them you genuinely feel like you are trapped in this house which i think is the big difference between those other like one room play movies that you know don't really work but like then you look at this the lighting in this is brilliant. The the close-ups on faces. And, you know, I, I just... Like, this This was his first time. This was Wexler's first time working in a studio instead of on location shooting. And it's just... It's amazing how great this movie looks and how effective the cinematography is. It's just... It's, it's so striking and memorable. Yeah. I mean, apparently he took hours and hours to, to light the set before every scene and it really drove everyone crazy mike nichols in particular was was ready to kill him i think but um just because he had never really lit in a studio set before but he did an amazing job it really is great for anybody who doesn't know the story it's set on a uh, college campus george and martha are a uh Oh, here's you know here's one of these movies I've seen seen sixteen times. So when I go to 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 summarize the plot, I I want to go into too much detail and I can't do it. Martha is the daughter of the headmaster of the school or principal of the school, and George has been in the history department for years and years and years and really going nowhere. He's, he's married the president's daughter, but everybody thought he was going places, but he really just 
ends up not being ambitious enough. And, and so they're this miserable middle-aged couple. Burton is playing more his actual age than Taylor is. I think she was, what, 33 when this movie was made, and she's playing, like, somebody in her mid-50s. She gained, like, 30 pounds for the role and, and really, like, just de-glamorized herself for this thing. Probably the best performance of her career. I think everybody would agree on that. I just want to point out that I feel super scandalized by this because Elizabeth Taylor was only 34 when she shot this, and that's the same age as me, and I don't like that. (laughs) Well, she's she's not playing 34, so you can take some comfort in that. I mean, she still looks really beautiful, but she also just looks older than I think I will ever look and not in like a like a hag way but in like a <laughs> maturity kind of way and that that kind of um, upsets me but uh, to Mike Nichols point for them shooting this in black and white she definitely you know she's believable she does a great job and her and, and Richard Burton they both look older mm. than they are well actually um, I guess Burton really didn't want Wexler to shoot this film because he thought with his documentary background he'd really make Burton look terrible like really show off his pock marks and and uh, it wasn't until he saw the first set of dailies he's like oh okay Wex- Wexler knows his stuff I, I look okay um and he doesn't look okay but it, it you know it satisfied Burton but yeah so they're they're just this miserable couple who have just come back from a, a faculty party and to uh, George's surprise Martha's invited this uh young couple who just started at the college back to their house for drinks and it's you know two in the morning so it's sort of ridiculous that the party should be continuing but it it happens and George and Martha spend the whole night sniping at each other and when George Siegel and Sandy Dennis come over they take all their frustrations out on them well actually Martha is very uh you know accommodating and wants George Siegel is you know this young blonde studly type and she's attracted to him but more just wants to sort of demonstrating to George that she's still desirable and just wants to play hump the hostess as they call it in the uh in the movie she's sort of putting the moves on on him the the, uh the whole time and uh and George is just you know being very arch and sarcastic and witty the entire time in the way that only Richard Burton can be like I I think he's absolutely hilarious in this film like his not just the great Edward Albee dialogue, the greatest greatest insults ever written, but the way he delivers them is is perfect. Elizabeth Taylor is hilarious in a very different way. Like she's just high camp. She just plays it to the back of the room the whole time and it's perfect. Like it's it's no wonder that Divine had based her whole persona on uh this period of, of Elizabeth Taylor movies. But yeah, just everybody's miserable the whole time. The the whole thing is pitched at a hysterical level, a lot of screaming and fighting and crying and emotions, and and I I laugh through the whole movie. It's <laughs> I think it's I think it's great. I've seen it so many times now that some of the stagier aspects of it, particularly towards the end, where some of the more literary dramatics of it that work fine on stage don't really work dramatically in a movie. I, I mean, it seems weird that I shouldn't be able to spoil this movie because most everybody's seen it, but I won't. I won't make give the big reveal at the end of this movie, but yeah, it doesn't quite work in a movie. The big, the big dramatic reveal, but it's still, you know, this is this is one of the greats for a reason. This is definitely one of the earliest movies that made me fall in love with with classic cinema, and you know, I've seen it 
Seen it many, many times. So why do you hate it? <sighs> I just... <laughs> You know, like, okay, so what's good here is the acting. I agree completely. Part of why I hate this is the fact that Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton are just too good at their job here. And knowing a bit, you know, about their personal lives, it's likely in part because they were drawing from real life uh, experience as this tumultuous pair of personalities that were just too too big to exist under one roof kind of thing so i mean in a rubbernecking kind of way i do <laughs> respect capturing that dynamic on screen and you know and again i i just the camera work here is brilliant when i think of this movie that you know the first thing i picture is the visuals of it the the close-ups on faces are just they're so effective and so well done and i mean in, in general when you pair such great cinematography with such great acting it's it's an undeniable pleasure and that's clearly on wexler like as the night wears on and everyone just gets drunker and, and you sort of you never know where the camera's going to show up next. I, I just love that, especially when Richard Burton and Siegel are out on the lawn, that one scene. And it's like the first big escape. And Nichols, you think he, Nichols is letting the air out a little bit, you know, like so, so you think. And the the camera in that scene, it just keeps moving as Siegel is rolling on the grass and he's on his back and the camera cuts around him in this way that becomes just as disorienting as it would be for someone to be drunk and sitting on a lawn at 3 a.m. or whatever time it is. And, uh, you know, and Burton is the one who's like grounding this scene. He's sitting still. He's parked by that tree. And it's just it's such an effective scene for the camera work and for just two guys sitting and talking really in a way that isn't any different than what they were doing in the house. And apparently Wexler actually had messed up this scene. He he got the meter wrong and, and it ended up looking like it was being shot in midday, even though it's meant to be in the middle of the night. But uh, they fixed it. <laughs> um, but I think I mean, I you know, Wexler, the, the framing of that is just it's brilliant. And then, of course, the editing is brilliant. Uh, and, and the the sets in this are brilliant. You know, it, it really is this this, you know, this group collaboration of of just everything coming together in the right way as far as just visually for this film, uh, making it not seem like a static play, like I was saying. Like the house, I mean, the house is amazing. Beyond just the how it's lit and how it's shot, I just, I love how real and lived in it feels. I don't think there's any house in cinema I know the interior of better than this house. The house itself has so much personality. Like, I mean, a lot of it's the art direction, just the, the attention that's paid to what's hanging on the walls and the, like, things that are sitting out on the table. But just the layout of the house and the, and the way that it's shot, like, I, I feel like I've lived in that house. A lot of it is just how Wexler lit it that makes it so memorable. It's really such a stark contrast between how... And I, I mean, I, I have to believe a lot of this is Wexler's doing because this was Mike Nichols' first film... He'd only directed on stage before this. So I, I have to believe that, that Wexler said, okay, the best man, I didn't get quite as creative as I could have been in these interior scenes that are set in one space. So I'm going to really nail it this time. I think it's just him setting that challenge for himself that makes this really jump out visually a lot more than than best man does. But I'm sorry, I think I cut you off when you were about to say No, so... You know, all of that's great, but then, unfortunately, the script. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't understand 
why anybody would choose to watch this more than once. Like, I just honestly, I don't get it. I just, I think this movie is just so cruel and obnoxious. And, you know, I appreciate the acting, but it just, it doesn't do anything for me. I don't feel for any of these characters. I, I mean, there's maybe there's, there's some pity for the younger couple that just doesn't know what they were getting into. But otherwise, I just, I feel like I'm just watching a murder for two and a half hours. And I just don't find that worth anything beyond its initial shock value. I just, I, I don't find any value in films that talk down to their audience for engaging with them when they're the ones that have invited us in to begin with. I just find this movie to be as cruel as its characters. I just don't find any worth in this movie. No, I, I love it. And here's what I, here's what I've decided. I find George entirely sympathetic. Like I totally vibe with his completely defeated character who you know, is just so put upon. And it the wish fulfillment comes in being able to come up with such brilliant put-downs one after another the way he does, the way, you know, the, the dialogue that, that Albie puts in his mouth. Like, that's how you want to be able to talk to people when you're just at the end of your rope, totally frustrated with yourself and your life, just totally miserable. You wish you could behave the way that George does in this film. And that's that's what I think is so satisfying about it. No one should ever behave the way that George and Martha do. Like, I, I mean, I don't relate to Martha at all, but George is just... <laughs> I feel like everybody has been there, has been that guy. And to be able to... <laughs> To be so cruel so creatively is is really satisfying. I think that's it's about as simple as that. Is it? <laughs> I mean, I'll agree that Richard Burton is the most interesting character in that he has the most to work with and is also the most deserving of ridicule. <laughs> <laughs> I just think he's awful. He's just, he's a user who resents using and being used. You know, he hates himself, and, and that's why he's so good at those insults. I guarantee that he spends all day just listing the ways that he hates himself every time he passes his reflection. So, takes one to know one, Ricky boy. <laughs> but, like, I think there's a balance between thoughts and actions and intentions, and you're not, like, inherently evil for having contradictions. You're evil... If you act out in a spiteful and petty rage and you're evil when you intend to do harm to other people. And like that's what this film is. It's two people trying actively to harm each other and calling it love. And I just I don't see any connection between hate and love. I don't find anything universal in that. I don't understand people who are like so bored and pathetic and useless that they relate only through anger and vindictiveness like that person obviously exists, <laughs> but I don't find that to be universal. I, I don't I, I resent being thrown into a room with that person for two hours, two of those people for two hours. <laughs> it's just it's, it's not a lesson that I need. Like I have no I have a no nonsense policy. For toxic friendships or relationships and I've just never been the person that goes out of their way to be vicious like I may have steamrolled people unknowingly but never in like a pointedly vicious way I, I don't I just don't get people that would go out of their way to do that and then especially to, to get any sort of enjoyment out of something like that and I guess you know you can take this film as a sort of 
dressing down of the illusion of Hollywood or or like the power of a you know a shared dream or an unreality that can float an entire relationship that's sinking or has sunk ages ago. But I, I don't think it's fully effective at either of those because it's just so it feels so specific to this couple. And I mean, thank God that divorce is normalized. It just makes this film feel even more like a relic. Mm-hmm. And also, I just this this movie, it's just it's not funny. I don't find anything about this even mildly amusing. Like, OK, there's like that one. There's <laughs> I like when Elizabeth Taylor declares that she is the earth mother and, and they are all flops like that line is solid and i'm gonna bring that one back but otherwise Monkey i just nipples. i didn't even crack a smile once i just i just hate these people so much i just can't stand spending time with them or or being even across the screen from them i mean why would anyone choose to watch this movie <laughs> it's the breakdown of all social niceties you're sort of beating around the bush of what it is actually so appealing about this movie is that here are people that that don't obey any of the of the social niceties and look like how they've, they've awful got... they are <laughs> <laughs> but it's cathartic it's there's something about it it's it's is it because <laughs> i didn't find anything about this cathartic whatsoever i, I mean the the ending what was it what was i meant to do cry they build up so much gravity and cruelty that ending it just like it amounts to nothing like the audience gets nothing the characters get nothing and you know you don't get the sense that anything's changing or anything has changed or that that you know it, it, it's like the the movie's so high key cruel throughout this entire film that ending doesn't amount to anything more than like you know, the the ringing of a boxing match bell in the middle of the show. Like, it, it doesn't have any impact. Mm. And, like, I, I can I can be down for some cutting cruelty if it if it works towards something, you know, or even if the, the point is just to complete a type of, like, hyper-specific character portrait. Like, I, I like that satirical, honest cut at a type of person. But for this, I mean, this is it's just, you know, Liz and, and Richard, uh, they're putrefied goop. They're both dead. I don't understand why people choose to, like, dig their heels into this kind of situation like that. It's as meaningful as choosing to, like, step into a black hole. Like, or better yet, choosing to marry a soul-sucking black hole and then staying there because your life is, like, utterly meaningless without creating antagonism in order to give you something to repel against. Like, why would I ever, like, how do you even get caught in a scenario like that? I just, I don't have patience for that in real life. And I especially don't have patience when it's like the sort of film that hinges on me reflecting on my role in participating in this sort of crap. Uh, I think, I think you're saying exactly the, the same things that I like about this movie, just in a negative way. I mean, it's, it's fantasy. It's like, it's you, what you want to see where, you know, jumping, jumping into that black hole leads. And that's, that's this movie. No one actually wants to be in this situation, but it's thrilling to watch, you know, such, such great actors articulating such misery in, in such a, funny aggressive way (laughs) but it's not funny it's just mean like i i I will say okay i will say that admittedly that there was value in rewatching this a second time in the sense that i picked up a bit more on how certain details get called back later on like uh this the scene in the backyard with burton and siegel where burton starts to tell a story about a friend and, and how he had this experience at a brewery where 
he doesn't know the correct word for bourbon and he calls it how stupid he calls it like blurbin or something <laughs> bergen <laughs> oh yeah 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 bergen bergen whatever i mean yeah and then it, it, so you know he's telling this story and it quickly becomes clear to everyone except siegel that he's really you know he's talking about himself and oh see i thought it was clear that he's this is a story that he made up and he's calling it reality I don't know. It felt it felt so specific in detail. Like this was like his villain origin story. Like which is why you know it's why he says it happened to a friend. Air quotes instead mm-hmm. of uh, admitting it himself because you know later on it turns out that he basically like killed both of his parents and his father died in a car accident with him and and then his, he shot his mother in the face accidentally. <laughs> right. So so later on then when they're in the the house and Burden. And Burton gets that trick rifle out from the back shed area. And then he reenters the room and he aims it at like Taylor's face. And the camera cuts to this like straight on shot of her expression where everyone around her is is smiling. And she has this momentary fleeting like, oh, shit, because she knows that story. And she knows that this is how his mother died. And she doesn't think it's an accident. And it's just it, it's terrifying. I mean, like, because, you know, call me crazy. I don't think it's funny. <laughs> to joke about shooting your wife in the face i i just it's just unnecessarily cruel and it just makes me hate him and of course from from there he only gets meaner and meaner to everyone to seagull who he purposefully sets out to ruin uh, even before seagull decides to even sleep with taylor like i like i don't even think seagull is bad for sleeping with burton's wife at this point because he's just setting himself up burton is to be a victim by how often he lashes out at everyone around him He's impossible to not hate. He deserves his misery. I... And it just, it makes me resent watching this movie and wasting my energy hating him. <laughs> you you are definitely in the minority with this one. Because this is... Oh, I know. This is one of those movies <laughs> that <laughs> that everybody loves. And uh, and I know you. You can be awfully cruel yourself. Maybe it's, what? Maybe it hits too close to home. Maybe that's... It is too much for, like real life for you. Hold I up. Oh, wait, hold up. It, Have I been it, cruel to you? Is this how you tell me I hurt your feelings? When did this happen? I just just listened to the old episodes, every one of them. Oh come You're on! So mean to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it really does. I I really don't. I don't. I, I don't even leave this movie angry. I just leave this movie baffled. I just don't under. I don't understand why anyone would choose to watch this film. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but as you said, I'm in the minority. Well. Yeah, it's um, you know the the bitchiest movie ever made, and I thought everybody loved bitchy movies. <laughs> I just I don't you know life is miserable enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the last uh, black and white feature that Wexler made. I know he did some documentaries after this. May have been in black and white. But yeah, with his next film, In the Heat of the Night. In the heat of the night I'm feeling motherless made his first color feature and never never went back to black and white and you can definitely tell 
that this is his first color feature. It, it's lacking like a certain visual flair in many ways. And I always find it funny just in general how shots that can look dynamic and black and white can end up being so washed out in color if the lighting isn't right. This film is just it's like a vibrant shade of tan. <laughs> I mean, but it's also, you know, it's a dusty, dirty backwater of a town kind of film. So it works. It's a pretty striking looking film. You know, there's certain ways that he shoots it, switching to handheld occasionally and taking some distant shots where you sort of get a real sense of the smallness of the people in, the, in this environment. But yeah, his, his color films have a very different feel to them. The dramatic lighting of his black and white films is kind of gone, and the lighting is really toned down in his color films. I know that that was intentional in Heat of the Night because... Wexler was aware of how standard Hollywood lighting glares too much on black skin, so he he lit the film for Sidney Poitier and didn't want his facial features to get lost in the in the sort of glare of the reflected light. So he he toned down all the lighting for this film. But it seems like you know this sort of low diffused light became his mo for for all of his color films, and it seems very different than what he did at least in terms of lighting for his black and white films. But in the heat of the night is another one of these movies where maybe it's not quite as seen as uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Not as much of a cinephile movie, I guess, but it was hugely popular in 1967 when it came out. Directed by Norman Jewison, written by Sterling Sullivan from a novel which I have to believe is a lot more tightly plotted than the film, because the film itself, at least as far as the, the mystery is concerned, is really leaves, leaves a lot to be desired. There's a lot of big holes in it. But uh, for anyone not familiar with the film, there's, uh, there's a murder in the town of Sparta, Mississippi. This guy who's uh, come to town, I think he's uh, from the north. Well, he's not, he's not from there anyway. Philip Colbert has come to Sparta to open a factory and, and provide lots and lots of jobs for the town, including, you know, lots of jobs for black people as well as white people. And this is 1967 Mississippi, so it's a very segregated town, tons of racist good old white boys in, in this town. This Philip Colbert winds up dead, and Sidney Poitier, who is a Philadelphia homicide detective, it just happens to be in town uh, waiting at the train station. His mother lives nearby. He's on his way back to Philadelphia from visiting his mother. But he's picked up because, well, he's black, and that uh, in, in Mississippi, that's enough of a reason to get arrested. And he's got a lot of money in his wallet. He's a police detective in Philadelphia and makes makes plenty of money doing that, I guess. So um, he's innocent of the crime, of course, and that's discovered pretty quickly, but um, because he's such a good homicide detective and they've never had a homicide in this small town before, his chief back home says, oh, well, well uh, Virgil, Virgil Tibbs is the character's name. Why don't you stay there and help him out with this case, try and figure out who did it. So uh, Mr. Tibbs is, is stuck in Sparta, Mississippi, helping out racist, but not entirely unsympathetic. Chief Bill Gillespie, played by Rod Steiger, figure out who, who solved Mr. Colbert, Colbert. Um, and you've got a lot of this um, people in this small southern town who counter Virgil Tibbs and won't accept that he deserves their respect and is is actually a, a very smart homicide detective and a lot of violent racist encounters. And yeah, eventually he solves the crime. It's an interesting film for 
showing how a professional black man is treated in the in the deep south at this time but as as far as a, the mystery itself goes I, I don't think it's much of a movie they had a hard time locking down funding actually because of this question of of would this play in the south and eventually i think the producer was like does it need to play in the south like we've got people in the north and and uh, they ended up getting money for it i like this movie a lot but it's a perfect example of that that first jump into color and the director being maybe a bit overwhelmed (laughs) because it definitely lacks style and not just in the lighting which which i understand because lighting for black skin is a really interesting topic because it's just one of these things where you get all these predominantly white filmmakers and they they don't think about it until they're you know everything shot afterwards and they look and they're like oh crap (laughs) and it's actually an issue now more than ever it's something that's come up again and again for digital at this age of digital cinematography because it's quite hard uh in digital cinematography because these cameras are calibrated towards lighter skin colors which is like a a google rabbit hole you can go down if you're if you're interested but there are certainly ways to do it and people just they they fail at it left and right but um but i just i feel like this movie is just kind of static like the Shots are just not as thoughtfully framed the way that they typically are in Wexler's other stuff. I don't know. I, I feel like it must just be that. that that Because, you know, it's overwhelming to change mediums and, and to change cameras. And, and so, you know, I, I kind of chalk it up to that. But pretty goddamn charming. Especially considering the horrendous subject matter that they're dealing with. Rod Steiger, man, he's bringing it. Like iconic racist gum chewing that alone deserves any reward lee grant as the the widow of the the murdered man and this is her first film since she was blacklisted that's pretty cool and then of course i mean sydney portier i mean he's always great he's always just dealing with the worst white people <laughs> he's always just patiently dealing with the worst people even though he's the smartest guy in the room but i don't i had a lot of fun with this i didn't really care about the holes in the plot which i agree there are quite a few but the dynamic between him and rod steiger is just really compelling and truthful it never gets over the top a lot of just great interactions with virgil just refusing to buy into this Mississippi bullshit (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, you know, being begrudgingly protected by Steiger over it. Warren Oates looking as young as I've ever seen him and, and gangly and and weird and pervy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's just, there's so many good moments of, dialogue and memorable scenes but even like you know the most memorable scene in this is that that slap where Virgil realizes there's a certain type of dirt that is found in the car and the shoe of the dead man and and they sort of trace it back to this guy's greenhouse this guy Endicott who owns a cotton plantation and it's just very clearly modern day slavery and and he's surrounded by like you know he has like his his black butler that that you know yes serves him and and all that and so uh when virgil walks into this greenhouse and confronts him and accuses him of, of being involved in this 
Endicott almost reflectively after at a certain point of voices being raised reflectively slaps Virgil in the face who then without hesitation slaps him back even harder and it's like this really shocking moment because you're already processing the first slap which is like very clearly this like get in your place boy kind of slap and for Virgil to be able to turn around and, and just give it back completely, which, of course, then he turns to Rod Steiger, who's standing there, and, uh, you know, Endicott does and says, what are you going to do about it? Rod Steiger is like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I am, you know, and because he, you know, he's just as impressed and horrified as as the audience in that moment. It's really like one of the best instantaneous moments of revenge set to celluloid, you know? And it's just so great and it's so memorable, but it's framed kind of weird. <laughs> it's just kind of a straight on shot, isn't it? It's just, you know, the two yeah, on either side of the frame. It's very, very, yeah, very generic. Stagger's right there in the center. It works. Yeah. It's not a bad shot. It's just that it's just weirdly impersonal. I don't know, but it, the scene works, so. It's, it is kind of shot in the sort of standard new Hollywood 70s style, which I have such a fondness for. I love the look of, you know, the, the grainy color that was so popular, you know, at this time, like through the mid to late 70s. There wasn't much before this movie that had that, that look. So feel significant for that reason, but I can't really claim that Wexler invented that uh, gritty New Hollywood look. But uh, it's it's there in this movie, and and it sucks me in for that reason. But yeah, in terms of composition, framing, and and the you know, camera movements and stuff, there's there's not too much that stands out in this as particularly exciting. But it is, yeah, it seems like him working out lighting challenges and, and not worrying about too much else. I mean, it is, it's kind of a dumb movie, really. Uh, so much that happens, you're like, oh. <laughs> it just gives, <laughs> Tibbs knows everything. Like, it's, they never give you any reason why he knows these things. Like, having uh, Sam, played by Warren Oates, drive him, you know, the, the route that he took on this night when he discovers the body. He's like, how, how come you didn't drive down that way the way you did that night so you could look at the the naked lady through the window and, and uh, yeah, it's like, like, how did you know? <laughs> how, could, how could he have possibly known that just because he from Philadelphia and, and knows everything? And, <laughs> and the movie is just full of stuff like that. And, and you know, maybe maybe the book explains a lot of these things, but you just have to watch this movie for the actors and how the characters play off each other because uh yeah it's not not much of a story yeah i kind of agree but it was the best picture of that year according. i, I mean i really like i really like this movie i thought it was really fun but i'm with you it's like it, it it's got it has problems <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm just discovering i don't like norman jewison very much like i always thought i liked it in the heat of the night i thought oh yeah good movie i watched it again and you know really like its flaws really really became apparent to me this uh this time through and uh you know the russians are coming the russians are coming and the movie that wexler did after this the thomas crown affair which we're not going to talk about because it's, it's that that's a really stupid movie that <laughs> I've, i have just I have nothing to say about maybe we can save it for for an episode where we talk about 60s movies that use that that multi-screen effect but i don't think it 
there's much to say. Hal Ashby. Well, I think yeah, Hal, Hal Ashby was the editor, but I think the person who actually yeah, it's probably someone did else. The, I I I don't I didn't write down any of the details here, but it's he was a title designer who who actually did a lot of the multi-screen stuff. But we'll save that for another episode because it is it's a cool, very '60s effect, and it's the only notable thing about this movie, really. I like Faye Dunaway in that movie. I hate I Faye Dunaway like in this movie <laughs> more. I like this movie more than Bart, but um, I agreed to skip it because we didn't want too many movies in this already long episode. But Faye Dunaway's terrible in this movie, <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's clearly just subject matter wise, it's nothing that Wexler probably was was terribly interested in. It was just a you know slick Hollywood entertainment. It was very popular, but but I think we should skip. It's another color film that feels like he's working it out, quite frankly. It gets a little more stylish, but it, it also is a bit stagnant. Uh, besides, like, there's a couple of really great scenes that, well, yeah, we'll talk about one day. But um, yeah, it, it's it, it feels like he's he's getting there. But it's it's not until his his last movie here in 1969, which is directed and shot by Haskell Wexler, that he really figures out color and he really figures out, you know, like what he's doing and he really finds his footing. And that is, of course, medium cool, baby. Medium cool is not just medium cool. It's very cool. <laughs> I really like this movie. <laughs> End episode. Yeah. But that's actually, it's a reference to a Marshall McLuhan thing that I don't necessarily understand that much. But TV is supposed to be a cool medium, according to McLuhan, because it requires more interpretation on the part of the audience. I, I Yeah, I don't really, I've never quite gotten him completely i never never took any communications courses so this is a really interesting i mean this has got to be his other best well-known film besides virginia wolf probably right it got a criterion release (laughs) we all know what that means (laughs) yeah i mean this is a beloved movie it's a beloved movie and it's another movie for 1969 that makes you feel like we are in a brand new decade it's it's really unique for many reasons, you know, this is following a TV news reporter around Chicago who is kind of just looking for stories. His name is, uh, this is played by Robert Forrester, who uh, I didn't realize um, that originally it was meant to be John Cassavetes, who then had to drop out. Like a character named John Cassavetes. He was meant to, yeah, playing playing himself, basically. But then he had to drop out and they were like, mm, who looks Greek? Robert Forrester <laughs> playing John Caselli's. But yeah, he basically is just going around Chicago and he's looking for stories and it kind of weaves in and out of multiple things. And in part because this movie was never really meant to it. It started off as as something else like Haskell Wexler was brought back in to do a documentary about a kid going through the city and looking at animals <laughs> or something and then Haskell Wexler got back to Chicago which is you know where he's from and there was this just interesting stuff happening and he just got so lost in 
the pulse of the moment that he ended up creating this other film and working through this. So what you get is this really interesting hybrid of documentary and narrative movie with characters and all of that. And it crosses between the two of them and not even that it intercuts them. It like blurs the lines between the two to the point where eventually you have a character dropped into a scenario who we are now following through the 68 convention and all of the clashes with the cops that were happening in Chicago around that time. Plus you, you get all this stuff about Appalachia, you get stuff about black power, you get stuff about the place of media and what it means to be involved in, in reporting and in the big sort of crux of the, the plot, even though it's the whole movie is pretty loose is this idea that, John realizes that the network has been feeding information that he's reporting on to the FBI and giving them access to his footage in order to find suspects. And, and he freaks out about this and kind of quits and walks away from it. But there's no there's no resolution. You know, this is it's a really free flowing late 60s film. And it and it's just it's cool, man. It is cool. Like they, it's really hard yeah. to sort of describe it because it's just it's it's doing something so radically different. What do, what do you like about this movie? Yeah, I mean it's free flowing, but it never feels like wandering or doesn't know what it's doing. Like it's every little thing that it sort of floats onto is really interesting. Yeah, and it's all I mean it's all kind of structured in a in a weird way. Like it's you know it starts with him filming this car accident that he stumbled on and he's shooting the dead bodies. And like only after, you know, he and his sound guy have, have covered the the scene completely. They're like, Oh, I guess we should call an ambulance. And like, just, you know, very quickly starts in with the, how feelingless journalists are and, and, you know, how exploitative television journalism is. And, and that of course comes back at the end of the movie and moves on to like the, the army training for how to deal with, with protesters and it's, you know, it's kind of this goofy scene where the these you've got these army people with plastic guns who are, you know, trying to control this crowd of like fake hippies, which are just soldiers dressed in like wigs and things. And it and that comes back, you know, later in the movie where they're at the, the Democratic convention and you're actually seeing actual cops beating people on the heads with their batons. It takes a lot of chances and constantly runs the risk of losing its audience just because there's no, it seems pretty directionless, but everything that it just moves on to is so interesting. There's, you know, lots of interesting little bits of character stuff. You follow this, this young, this single mother and her kid that John kind of gets involved with. And, and uh, we get to know them and you know, a lot of stuff that not very plot related stuff happens. And you're just kind of watching these, characters be and it's never boring it just somehow works and wexler just he has full reign of the material and he like takes a lot of risks with it too and never seems to like you, you get some some kind of stiff acting here and there and it's it's clearly not a, a big budget movie and it's using you know aside from the main cast there's a lot of non-actors who you know aren't that great but it's it's still like we'll switch between you know, characters talking directly at the camera. You've got, you know, that he goes into this this guy's apartment that he wants to do a story on, and there are a bunch of black power people there who who sort of confront him and address how the the media doesn't portray them accurately. And then you get them like addressing the camera directly and and talking about 
civil rights issues, black black power movement stuff, like directly at the camera. And the the movie is really like it's unpredictable and it doesn't stick to this firm reality. Um, but it somehow works. Like it's always moving back and forth on the spectrum of documentary and and fiction, and it somehow all, all works. I need to watch it a few more times to figure out how he actually pulls it off, but but he does. So it's kind of interesting because the making of this movie it really was done on the fly in a lot of ways. You know, you watch this movie and you kind of, I, you know, you're going to come away from this being like, I have to think about what this was about. There's a lot that's ha- that's packed into this. Funny enough, I think that Wexler walks away from this movie and has the same thought because he he even says in interviews he wasn't able to make any sort of overt statements except just to look at it from, you know, the point of the view of the cameraman and to to try and just challenge the system and and ask more uh, questions, which I think is in its way a, a very 1969 theme, this idea of confronting and questioning and asking, but not necessarily knowing the answer to, you know, and, and he says himself, he says, I, I didn't realize this to- the totality of it, but it's also something that as he got older realizes this is more relevant than ever. This idea of, of TV telling us what to do and, and TV telling us how to feel, which is you kind of get that theme starting when he walks into that apartment full of the black power guys. And apparently in real life, the only reason why he even knew about like who these different groups to even touch upon to include in this film was he was working with Studs Terkel the uh you know author and historian and he knew these groups and so it was only because studs would say this guy no 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 this guy's cool like let him let him in that he was able to get you know robert forster in there to kind of to talk with these people even though they weren't actually actors and some of the stuff that they say to the camera was scripted and, and some of it was sort of off the cuff and and one of the things that was really striking in that scene particularly was them confronting this cameraman and saying, you know, you come down here to, to do a human interest story, but I don't, I don't wonder if you're doing something to the interest of other humans or whether you consider the person human with whom you you're interested, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, it's great. They really dress him down for coming in uh, out of his arrogance and expecting people to just be what they want. And meanwhile, he, as part of the media is exploiting them and, and, only showing them, as one guy says pointedly, which is reverberates even louder today, is this idea of how come we only make it to the news when we're dead. You know, suddenly we're we're all over the news, but when we're doing when we're organizing, when we're doing positive work, you know, you guys are nowhere to be found. Which then kind of cuts directly into this shot of the cameraman now at a gun range and all of these like suburban housewives shooting their guns at the gun range, you know, and, and this idea that, that TV is kind of telling you who to be afraid of and TV is it's controlling the narrative and it's telling you, well, why, why are you even afraid uh, other than what you see on the news, you know? And when they, when this eventually devolves into this, the 68 protests, which is one of the the bigger stains (laughs) on our country, quite frankly, at least in modern history, but you now even have Haskell Wexler in the crowd with the protesters shooting news trucks, driving through these crowds and then being allowed out by the police that are that are not allowing protesters out. And so you even get to, you see these people and protesters yelling at the news like, stop, come and see, observe. And they don't. They kind of roll through and, and then 
minutes later, the cops are just beating the ever loving shit out of these guys and they're, they're tear gassing people. And Haskell Wexler is like kind of caught up in it. Like someone captures it. <laughs> so it then becomes this almost like meta commentary on an already meta commentary, especially when you're seeing Verna Bloom as Eileen walking through these scenes in this bright yellow dress so all of this like action's happening and it's real and you have this one character who's kind of reminding us that we're watching a film but we're not because we're watching documentary footage and <laughs> you know so it's just this constant like mm. echo of a film you know it, it's just this this mirror of a mirror of a mirror and it's fascinating i another really great scene for that too is this scene of of verna bloom watching martin luther king giving a speech on tv and she's crying and next to her you have robert forster who watches the same scene and he says god i love to shoot film (laughs) (laughs) so i for me this was a movie about disconnect And I think that's something that also is very much on Haskell Wexler's mind because part of his passion for filmmaking, he gained through like shooting home movies with his family when they traveled. And, you know, he talks in interviews about how I I learned to disconnect in order to get the better shot. So I think this, this film in general is a bit of him wrestling with that aspect of himself and with what that symbolizes and what that means on a very practical level as somebody who's part of media. Yeah. And I just really like how this film kind of incorporates everything we've seen him do. Totally. In the 60s up until this point. It has to be at least semi-intentional. Him him saying, oh, it's the end of the decade. Let me take a look at, at what I've done, what's happened, and how I've approached it, and what I've done right, what I've done wrong. And I mean, I don't know how much of it isn't even necessarily intentional since since he just you know happened to be in Chicago for the Democratic convention and all of this went down and it's those scenes that he shoots at the convention look exactly like what he shot in The Best Man like it's it's right. it's crazy you know except it's in color instead of black and white and and that scene you were just talking where they're watching Martin Luther King on the on the TV like in, in 63 giving his speech at the you know march on Washington right. it's, you know it, it all just it's a, a total summary of his first decade as a professional cinematographer even that naked wrestling scene is a callback to Thomas Crown affair is it <laughs> i don't remember na- yeah they have a great sex scene in Thomas Crown affair where it's all these like close-ups on parts of naked bodies, you know, and this is, it's not the same. It doesn't have the editing because it's really more of this weird kind of fisheye, but it's this weird little like erotic romp that never, (laughs) you don't really ever see anything happening, but it's like sort of sensual and kind of, kind of strange. Oh, I know what you're referring to, but I I didn't really connect that bedroom scene in, in medium cool to that at all. I thought it was him sort of, playing with this idea of, of voyeurism and how as a cameraman, like the, you know, sex is what, uh, is what people want to see. So I'm going to show you what it is you want to see, but be, I don't, I don't, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not really entirely Why not sure. Both? What, <laughs> yeah, it could be both. <laughs> I really appreciate the fact that we watched not all of his, but a, a lot of his sixties films before I finally watched medium cool for the first time. Because I think that it totally enriched my experience of this. It really like put a lot of stuff in in place. 
And uh, I even liked the Zappa soundtrack in this. I even like got real excited about that. That was like perfect. <laughs> Except it was coming out of this band who was clearly not the mothers of invention. It's just this, some random hippie band up on stage and, and Zappa music is coming out of their PA for some reason. Oh, and you know who else did music was Mike Bloomfield of uh, the live adventures of Mike Bloomfield and Al Cooper fame. <laughs> well, actually, what, bit more of actually fame of, of Bob Dylan's uh, electric band when he went electric. And apparently Mike Bloomfield's related to Haskell Wexler. That blew my mind. <laughs> but anyhow. So so that's Haskell Wexler. Can't really talk about cinema in the in the 60s without... Uh, Without talking about him, he had a huge influence on uh, what films looked like after the 60s and during the 60s. And in an attempt to broaden the definition of who makes a film on on Cinema 60, we're trying to not necessarily just do the works of directors. We're trying to do, you know, writers and cinematographers and anybody who's made a distinctive mark on the films of of the decade. And he, for sure, is an important one. If you haven't gone back and watched films based on a cinematographer as opposed to a director or an actor or even a writer, I highly recommend it. It's very interesting. And certainly if you choose a really talented cinematographer, you're going to get some really great stuff. I'm still caught up on you um, saying that you know me and that I am miserable and uh, and Rule. evil. And I want to know more. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. No, I mean, you're you're cynical and sarcastic and have a potty mouth, but I don't think you're mean. Yeah, because I'm the Earth Mother and you're a flop. <laughs> You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.